This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. This show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know where to begin or find out more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs here in LA, you can go to the website. We'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts here on the Art of Charm. We'll send you all the fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking and negotiation, relationship management, public speaking, and more. Pretty much all the stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. We've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. Details on that at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Give us a call here in the office or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at The Art of Charm. Today I'm talking with my friend Tim Ferriss. He's been on the show before, and here he is again. We're going to talk about our weird superstitions that we have when we're recording. He's also doing a show now, as many of you know, Language Learning and Hacking Chinese, Tim's new TV show, or not-so-new TV show, and how you can get your hands on it. Licensing your own show, the big pain in the arse that that is, and why it's important to him and why it might even be important to you. Learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu from Marcelo Garcia, how Tim selects his mentors and his teachers, current biohacking experiments, fasting, ketosis, an exercise called fear setting that will rocket you past your personal limitations, and Tim's favorite skills that he's learned and hacked over the years. So enjoy this one with Tim Ferriss. So you started off, you know, when I first started learning about the language stuff, I'd already been like a language learner. And I didn't know until just today that you had already studied Mandarin because I had sort of been thinking, yeah, 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 learn Spanish fast, whatever. Try learning Mandarin, sucker. And you're like, I already did that. (laughs) Yeah, I was was initially a neuroscience major undergrad at Princeton. And then I transitioned over to East Asian studies because I wanted to apply the neuroscience to language acquisition. And I'd spent a year abroad from 15 to 16 in Tokyo with the Japanese family going to Japanese high school. And when I say Japanese high school, not an international school, I was the only American at a 5,000 person Japanese high school. So I went to Japanese classes in Japanese, which made my head explode. And I learned most of the language through comic books. But I ended up focusing on Chinese when I got to college and then transitioned to East Asian studies and had an opportunity and that was part of the reason I chose uh, Princeton. It was down to Stanford and Princeton based on the, the strength of their language programs. And the Princeton and Princeton and Beijing program that allows you to travel to China for the period of, uh, I guess it's one or two months, is very well known within the 
community of language learners as being uh, one of the top. So I also did experiments at uh, Middlebury Language School. Oh, I know that place. Yeah, yeah the immersion program yeah. where you take the pledge not to speak English. That that seems nuts because even when you go abroad, you would speak some English, and yet you're here. You are in Connecticut or whatever, and you're not speaking a word of English. Yeah, it's very odd. It's very forced, yeah. but it does work very well. And with Chinese specifically, I mean, what I think is very helpful to separate out if you're studying a language like Mandarin or Cantonese or Vietnamese is you have to separate out the attributes that you need to develop from the skills that you need to develop. And what I mean by that is if you sit down with someone for a day or two days and train them to memorize, say, Spanish vocabulary, mm -hmm. if they're an English speaker, most of them will not have too much trouble speaking Spanish unless right. they're a British English speaker. And then they can't say like poder, you know, if you say right. like poder, they'll go poder, poder, and they can't, you know, because they can't say better, they say better. You know? All right. So they're still Frenchizing. They have a lot of trouble with Spanish, but ultimately an, an, an American English speaker could memorize, say, 500 to 1,000 words of Spanish in two or three days. I know it sounds impossible, but if you use techniques like the link word mnemonic, you can do it. If you sit someone down for Mandarin and you're like, okay, say maybe in Chinese and you're like, yes, you Yes, you like, or you're, you're like, say, uh, in Beijing dialect, like, like, where are you going? Mm -hmm. This like retroflexive, they won't be able to do it. And what I mean by that, uh, more specifically is there are certain things you can brute force through rote memorization. There are other things that require physical adaptations. So your actual, like your, the muscles in your tongue and your mouth and your throat and your vocal cords need to develop to pronounce Chinese properly. And the greatest gift that someone can give you when you're learning a tonal language is to be absolutely mercilessly militant about your tones. Oh, yeah. And what I experienced when I went to Princeton in Beijing, and uh, just to give you an idea with Mandarin, I remember Chinese 101 landed and you have 40 or so, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed undergrads. They're so excited to learn Chinese. Oh, man. And a few weeks later, there were 12 people. <laughs> yeah. Because they're like, I'm an overachiever, but this is bullshit. Yeah. This right? is killing my ego. I think I want to say we had between six and eight classes a week, and wow, and like multiple classes per day sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and the way that it Jeez. was structured is really, I think, indicative of a good language program. And I've actually recently spent some time at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, which trains military, right? You know, NSA and so on to 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 listen. What you find is with uh, when you break it down, you'll have your grammar classes, of course, but then you'll have privates, and you can simulate this. Uh, online. You can do Skype lessons with someone. What you do is they'll send you a text. So they'll send you, say, three or four paragraphs of your target language, and you read those. All you do is you read them and record them, and you send those to the teacher in advance. Then the teacher will listen to that recording while following the text, circle the portions that you have trouble with, and then that's what you focus on in your private lesson. So for something like Chinese, that's super tactical and yeah. really surgical. When we got to Beijing, we found students, these poor bastards who had studied for like one or two years, got to China. Their teachers had not been completely unforgiving with the tones, and they basically had to start from scratch. Their, that, that's their, terrible. Their grammar was perfect, and nobody could understand them. My grammar is pretty bad, but my teachers are all on Skype. So yeah. they're all in China, and if they don't understand me, we can't converse. <laughs> so the real test is not like, oh, I'm used to hearing an American accent or like I'm American and I saw I saw. It's like they just don't hear. They don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. And there are some really cool hacks with tones. So for instance, uh, and, I, and we <laughs> hopefully people are interested in this. This applies to other stuff, guys. So 
Uh, but just to talk about it for a second, in Chinese, when you Romanize it, when you put it into the... Pinyin. Yeah, you, you find pinyin. And they have diacritical marks that indicate, you know, these kind of slashes that go up or down. They indicate first, second, third, or fourth tone. Those are really hard to remember. And, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. It just, I had the, this is a theory, I haven't proven it, but it just seems like having two horizontal bands uh, for that type of writing is extremely hard for English speakers to remember. Sure. You forget the tones. You remember the spelling, but you forget the tones. So when I learned my tones in college, we used something called GR. And that stands for Guoyu Romazi. And Guoyu is, is, uh, is a way that a lot of Taiwanese people say. Right. Zhongwen, uh, you know, Chinese. Chinese. So GR, what they do in GR is when you, when you read the transcription in, let's just call it English instead of Romanization, in Roman letters, right? When you look at the transcription, the tones change the spelling of the word. So Guo, second tone, mm-hmm. is G-W-O. Guo. Like, you know, while I ate something Mm -hmm. is G U O H. That's fourth tone. And it makes it impossible to forget the tones. If you remember the spelling, you remember the tones. That's brilliant. Yeah. And it's just harder to teach. So most universities no longer use it, including Princeton. But it's it's incredibly effective. It's more effective, not only for that reason, but I I can see why you don't want to say, hey, there's a bunch of spellings, oh, and they change a lot, you're like, we'll use these slashes. But you're really kind of, you're taking a shortcut that just leads to going around in circles in a lot of ways, right? It's one of yeah. those things where you're like, hey, this took a month off the learning curve in the beginning, but now you're screwed for the next five years. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, really what I do, whether it's in my books or language stuff or in the TV show, is trying to hack what's called a sigmoid curve. So this is an Mm -hmm. S curve. And basically what you see when you're trying to learn a language, uh, when you're, you can actually apply it to options trading and all sorts of things is imagine an S where you grab the two ends and you kind of stretch it out horizontally so that, uh, there's basically on the X axis, you have time on the Y axis, you have proficiency Mm -hmm. and you have this basically flat line then suddenly shoots up in the air with this breakthrough that represents sort of a breakthrough in in learning and uh, capacity in a language. And then it slowly tapers so that you don't hit exactly a plateau, but there's a point of diminishing returns, right? And that first flat line, my job uh, when I'm trying to deconstruct a skill is to chop off as much of that as possible so that someone can hit that launch pad and that inflection point really, really quickly. And the way you do that in Chinese is by having someone just brutalize you with tones for a few weeks. I think that's really slick. I forced my teacher to be harder on me with the tones, and I got really good really quickly, and then she quit. And I had another teacher, and <laughs> they burned, were, burned her out. I have maybe. I mean, she didn't blame me directly, but it, it's very possible. Yeah. And she quit, and, and they gave me another teacher. And that teacher was like, "Oh, sure, I'll correct you." And it was like one in ten times. And there's no way I was getting it ninety percent right. Right? Let's. I'm still not. And so my proficiency went kind of on this weird downward slant until now. Some tones are so bad that the teachers like. What? Or they just go, no, it's this. You've said this 50 times, it's been wrong, <laughs> 49 times, just it's this. And you have to do that. In Chinese, they don't want to scare you away. One, because they want you to keep taking lessons. But now that I'm in like the end of but like the second level of the second book or whatever, they're like, okay, he's not going to quit. A lot of this shit is wrong, buddy. Here's yeah. how you do it. And I'm like, guys, come on. You know, you're. this is such a disservice. 
But you have to beg for it because you know that there's people taking Mandarin via Skype that are half. They said most people are half assing it. They're like executives that are getting sent at best to China, quarter assing at best. Yeah, yeah, quarter assing it. This is this person's getting sent to China by their company. The company's paying for the lessons. They've got to show up four or five days a week. They're taking it from the office and they're just like mailing it in. And they don't want the tones. They want to get a check mark that says they showed up to Chinese. Yeah, and so. I think that's very true. I think getting something like the tones right off the bat is huge. It surprises me that you knew students who went to China after two years and had to start over. And uh, I would say a year. Uh, a year. Two, two years would be, I mean, if, if a teacher let them go that long, they should get fired. I think so. But, uh, but a, full, a full year of courses. Yikes. I mean, I can see it happening. There was a guy when I went to, I had the same experience as you in Japan. I went to Germany for a year in high school, German public high school, and I was in East German school. It was a former East German. So they were like, Wait, where are you from? United States. What are you? What are you doing here? Even the teachers are like, okay, well, you must be fluent in German. So here's your chemistry homework. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. But I still remember things like carbon and nitrogen and stuff like and like <laughs> hydrogen in German. That's really funny. And because I learned it all. No, of course. And it, and uh, I mean, what what a lot of people don't realize, you can do something that I would call reverse learning, and it's a bit of a misnomer. But the point is. I will very often go to, say, a Japanese bookstore and buy a book intended for Japanese readers who want to learn English. Oh, that's good. And you get natural Japanese that way. Because what happens is many people who want to learn, say, Spanish, they'll be like, oh, cool, there's a book on how to curse in Spanish or like how to talk like a lover in Spanish, but it's written by some non-native speaker. Yeah. They get it and they end up using slang that was this 15 years old right you know? yeah. So it'd be like, yeah imagine if we rolled up to uh we're you know taiwan and we're using the equivalent of like 80s yeah. like breakdancing slang hey, groovy bro groovy that's what? rad dude that's x and they're like what the hell are you talking about yeah. but it sounds even worse because you're trying to do it in like a broken accent right you're like oh that's a radical you know and it's like no that doesn't work at all but the <laughs> the other thing is the once you have the pronunciation down the most important thing is learning the architecture of the language, meaning the grammar. Mm-hmm. And you can do that with whatever subject matter interests you. So I did that in Japanese through a judo textbook because I was able to bond with people in sports while sounding like Tarzan and through comic books. And I was really into martial arts. So I still remember things like you remember nitrogen. I still remember yeah. like momakohakuri, which is a detached retina in Japanese. Nice. That'll come in handy. <laughs> exactly. With Chinese, uh, my teachers are constantly yelling at me because I didn't learn how to write. I only learned how to read. Mm. And they're just like, but you have to learn how to write. You have to learn how to write. And I'm thinking, if I've got pinion on my phone and I can type and I can read, I can recognize the right character when it shows up, I will never need to write anything in Chinese unless, and it's some sort of combination of, I don't have any electronic devices and everyone around me is deaf, and I can't tell them what to write down for me. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. And, and if you think that's too far-fetched, think about the last time you wrote something in English and needed it because you couldn't write it anywhere else. And it's probably like three years ago, I, I wrote on a Post-it note. Well, no, I wrote on a Post-it note this week. Well, okay, if you need a Post-it note, type it into your phone and copy the symbol. I'm not going to spend five hours a week learning how to write characters. Like, it's just completely ridiculous. The writing is very time-consuming. The only benefit which is of questionable value is that if you have to read anything that is written quickly, knowing ah. the stroke order will help you tremendously. I see. So you're reading someone else's handwriting and you're like, what am I looking you're at You're reading right now? anything, any type of calligraphy or anything like that. If you don't know the stroke order, it'll be very hard to read. Really? Uh, but that, how often is that going to be a requirement, uh, yeah. right? Now, I, I would also say 
learning just how to write your name or something, your Chinese name, would is great just as a parlor trick right. to break the ice and have people go, oh, oh, your Chinese is so good. Oh, yeah, yeah, or yeah. How about something like, help, I can't speak, take me to the hospital? <laughs> oh, right. You should learn that phrase, right. too. My throat is closing. Please take me to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, your friend's monkey bit my tongue. Something like that. <laughs> and for people who wanted to really delve into this, I, I there's a, there's an entire section on meta learning in the Four Hour Chef, and we go really deep into a bunch of languages and and how you can basically start off. Let's say you're on a plane trip and you're sitting next to someone who speaks Russian. This is this is a true case uh, from my experience. We had eight hour flight and was able to basically deconstruct the entire language and writing system with a handful of sentences, like 12 sentences that you have them translate for you. Nice. And you can turn someone who's not a teacher, but a native speaker into a good teacher. And that's a really fun trick. This is like the spoken equivalent of the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Remember that typing thing where no. you have to use every character on the keyboard to type that sentence? It's <laughs> oh, something like that. Interesting. I think it's the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. But I mean, that's <laughs> less useful now, more useful as an analogy for having someone deconstruct yeah. and use every you know, character in their alphabet or whatever. Yeah, and there, I mean, the goal with almost everything that I'm doing is to try to identify the assumptions. So like, what are the so-called best practices? And then stress test those, yeah. right? So for instance, a friend of mine, Matt Mullenweg, who is uh, basically the lead developer of WordPress and now the CEO of Automatic, which is worth more than a billion dollars. He's a huge fan of Dvorak. I think there's also Colmac, which is one step beyond that. But the numbers are insane. It's something like if if you use QWERTY, the normal typing right. approach, then you know your fingers will travel 100,000 miles a week or something like that. To produce the same output in Dvorak, it's something like 3,000 miles. And oh, so wow. if you're trying to increase your speed but also decrease the likelihood of carpal tunnel syndrome and all of these biomechanical issues, then you can test something like Dvorak. It's really, really fascinating. That, I'm on the language kick, but I'm just thinking yeah. of ways to develop speed and efficacy in typing. Right? It's, it's funny that, I mean, this is something that we don't necessarily have to worry about. The reason I didn't learn Dvorak was primarily because I want to be able to use other people's computers occasionally. Yep. And once you learn one, I mean, that you're not going to go, oh, hold on, let me switch mentally back to QWERTY. It's, it's very hard to switch back and forth. I feel like it would be easier to switch back to English to Chinese and back than it is to switch from QWERTY to Dvorak Probably. On, a, on a dime. Probably. So you mentioned earlier you have a TV show. Now, is this, what are we talking about? Because a, a while ago, I don't want to say a long time ago, because we, we're not that old, but, yeah. <laughs> but it was a while ago, and you had a TV show that was like, what happened with that? Yeah. Because it sort of like, did it die a quiet, not so painful death? Was it in cryo-freeze? <laughs> like, what happened? There? I would say it was in cryo-freeze. That's actually, it was, it was Han Soloed mm -hmm. for a bit. And what happened was... For a very long time, I've had certain romantic notions attached to television. And, oh, I would love to experiment in television, see if I can take the things from some of the books and translate it to a visual medium. And that meant that I needed to have a lot of creative control, which is hard to get from very large networks. Right. Exceptionally Impossible. Difficult. Right. So I had a lot of things come to me related to TV. Do you want to do this? Do you want to do the lifestyle makeover of the Real Housewives of you know Orange County or whatever? And I, I, turned, it, I turned it all <laughs> no, down. No Turned it all down. You turned down Real Housewives? What's wrong with you, man? Uh, that's not a real example, but the, the oh, equivalent. Got it. I turned down tons of stuff. And then I had an opportunity with Turner Broadcasting to be an executive producer and have a lot of creative input and do a show that would basically 
force me to try to learn a new skill in a week with the help of an unorthodox but world-class teacher like Laird Hamilton for surfing or any number of things, right? Who was the guy who taught you how to shoot arrows? This is like a random samurai guru type dude? Oh, yeah. That was that was actually a couple of years ago in a, in a separate project. But I did a Japanese horseback archery. Yeah. Which, like, two things that are already really hard put together. Really dangerous. Yeah. Also, I wouldn't do that again, uh, but that's actually online uh, right now. People can see it for free. If they just search Tim Ferriss Horseback Archery, that was insane. And uh, all of the episodes that I ended up making for the Tim Ferriss experiment were insane. But the goal was to show people, just to give people a little bit of context, uh, that you don't need to be superhuman to get superhuman results. If yeah. you have a better toolkit, if you think about the sequencing, like we were talking about the tones and, right. and whatnot, you can compress that into a week and do some obscene, ridiculous, seemingly impossible things. The long story short is that the entire division that was responsible for this show went out of business. Just fizzled out. Yeah, they fired everybody and all of the content, every TV show they made, all of the online content, everything just got shelved, put into the vault. And oh, that means no one has seen these episodes. They've seen two out of 13 episodes and then it disappeared. And so I've spent a year negotiating back the rights and I'm going to distribute it myself digitally. And um, that is super fucking exciting to me because it's been such a labor of love for so long. Right. It's like you have a bunch of paintings that you created in the basement that no one's seen and you're like, no, 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 trust me that they're like really good, bro. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no exactly. One believes you. No, exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, imagine if you're like Guns N' Roses and you felt like you had just recorded Appetite for Destruction and then you're like, no, we're just going to keep that in the basement. Yeah. That's, that's for us to listen to. And yeah. you're just like, wait, what? Like, yeah. no, no, no. And um, for instance, I mean, one of the things I wanted to do is I looked at all the TV out there and I was like, all right, what do I like? So I'm only going to make a show that I would want to watch. And I kept on coming back to this production company called 0.0, which did all of Anthony Bourdain's stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, right on. So it's super gritty, really cinematic, very kinetic, very fast moving. And we ended up working together. So That's they, great. They, so they did all the shows. All right. Back to Tim Ferriss. It must have been really frustrating because we were getting, and we still do get pitched TV shows all the time. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and we talk about it in team all the time. We're like, listen, if Tim Ferriss's show got canceled, <laughs> we got to think about what our show is going to do because we're on the, we're a similar type of organization in that we teach skills to people that are unusual in an unusual way. Like maybe yep. the market doesn't want that, but I'm glad yep. to hear that it wasn't canceled. It just got shot down in a fireball it for no or- reason. It got orphaned and it's, yeah. it's really, I'm hoping this can be a test case, a success story for other creators in a similar position because there are, I kid you not, thousands of musicians out there who are starving basically and they have an amazing album that is orphaned at a label. The label isn't using it. It's not for sale and they cannot get the rights back. And that just makes me so sad and angry. So I'm hoping that this ends up being a catalyst to help all sorts of authors, musicians, artists of any type who are then like, wow, wait a second. The the landscape has changed. Like I can go to Kickstarter. I can raise this money and get the rights back for my stuff and resurrect it. That's a good point. Because if you're a band that has a small cult following and you released or you had an album and it kind of got dinged or orphaned, you could say, hey, listen, fan base, we need like 180 grand or 500 grand to get this together. And we don't have that. We'll right. throw in the first hundred thousand if you guys fund the rest, Definitely. and everybody else has to throw in like ten bucks. And it's yeah. like, and if it comes out, you get it 
for free. You got Definitely. it for ten bucks. Definitely, and there, yeah. and I think there are a lot of different options. I mean, you could, if you really wanted to try to apply pressure, you could go to you know change.org and get a massive groundswell of of public petitions yeah. to drive kind of political pressure if the labels or networks are disincentivized from yeah. doing a deal. There are a lot of different yeah. tools in the toolkit, and uh, so I think it's a, it's a very exciting time and. The, the skills that we covered, I mean, I, I did so much damage to myself with, you know, trying to become, go from zero to hero with parkour in a week. Right. Uh, still have injuries from that. Right. You're uh, like, I got vertebrae that really yeah, want this show to yeah, come out. I mean, and I had to travel with an ultrasound kit and an electrical stimulation unit and all this crap. I mean, <laughs> yeah, just to keep going. And, uh, I really, I'm so excited for, for it to actually be out there for people. So it's going to be in iTunes. We're going to link that up in the show notes. Yeah, it'll be on iTunes. Uh, people should be able to find it uh, right now uh, at uh, iTunes.com forward slash Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's. This is the part I'm super excited about aside from the fact that we have these shows. So these shows are fourhourworkweek.com forward slash TV all spelled out is going to have hours and hours of bonus footage and extended interviews and extended tutorials oh, cool. because the part of TV that just killed me more than anything else is we, we would film. It turns out if you don't want to do like cheesy, schlocky, fake reality TV, right? It's a lot of fucking work. Yeah. Like four hour work week doesn't apply to TV. Okay. We did, Got it. we did 12 to 16 hours of filming per day, five to six days a week for each episode that got cut down to 21 to 22 minutes. So basically, Insanity. what's the ratio? Have you ever done the math? On no, the I haven't done the math. I mean, it, it's gotta be just Lilliputian. It's so little of the content that we captured and we captured enough for every one of these episodes to make in my opinion like the world's best two-hour documentary on every every subject every single subject whether that's the dating stuff the language learning rally car racing drumming parkour surfing poker we did that was an insane one uh professional poker i had to yeah, play too with much my, math for me yeah no. i had to play with my own money at the end of the week uh well <laughs> i part of the, the other reason i went to princeton is because they didn't have a math requirement right so this I was like you. double like donkey punch in the face that's why i went to law school i, I was like what's a career that has meant donkey kick <laughs> yeah, donkey punch is something else completely yeah, you heard it no, here first no donkey punching yeah. <laughs> during poker it's very strict <laughs> etiquette rule yeah <laughs> i don't know what you're playing and it's fine where i come from um <laughs> michigan right. rules <laughs> poker <laughs> <laughs> Suck it up. Yeah. Walk it off. Right. <laughs> so that's in iTunes, and then you bought, fought tooth and nail for this thing. And I here fought it is. tooth and nail, and I mean, ultimately, it's not that they were against it. It's just that you have to recognize right. as a creator, these people, I mean, they're, they're good people, but in an organization, any huge organization, what you represent is a rounding error. They have to rank order their own priorities, and yeah. you're just not going to be a high priority. So, was, was it like they just didn't even get back to you because it was so low priority? Or was it like you were assigned to an intern who had to kick things so far no, up the food they, chain? No, they got back to me. The challenge was that there were a couple of like wrinkles, including the fact that they were uh, trying and did succeed to sell a lot of the rights internationally. Mm -hmm. And so the question was like, well, what format, oh, yeah. what format would your rights potentially take? Uh, there were also... Just a handful of projects going on simultaneously, not the least of which was the fact that this this startup called Upwave within Turner was basically divesting itself of almost all the employees, and they just had a lot on their hands. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. So, you know, re replying to putting me potentially licensing something from them uh, on the map was not the most important thing for them to be doing at the time, which I totally get. So it's taken a long time. 
but I think that people who have direct relationships with their fans can really pull off magic tricks that would have been inconceivable even five years ago. I'm very uh, optimistic about the future. And I think that, uh, you know, another thing that I realized is a lot of the most talented folks out there, whether they're, say, sound engineers who used to work for NPR, but then, now they're like, oh my God, this podcasting thing isn't a fad. Right. I should go out on my own. Yeah, Alex Bloomberg style. Right. And, yeah. and uh, or just freelance as someone who does post for podcasters like you or sure. me. You're having this incredible opportunity for people who are, who are once full timers to go freelance. What that means for, say, TV is like if people love this series and season of TV and the bonus videos and everything else that I'm putting out, I could go to Kickstarter or some equivalent platform, raise all the money and go right out to the market and get world class cinematographers, yeah. uh, directors of, of photography. And it's not like I'm getting the junior varsity team. Right. I could get the best of the best. Well, you just need to call everybody that worked on the first season of your show that got fired. Well, right. <laughs> so right, you, right. you have your team already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. So there, there's, it's a very exciting time to be creating anything, so, I think. Are you hoping this turns into season two of... Uh... It wouldn't. So if it, it, it probably wouldn't turn into season two. Because it would have of, to be something different. It would have to be something different, uh, or at least in name, something very different. But uh, the the hope is that people love this and they say, we are happy to pay for this because it's fucking rad. Right. And uh, I, I'd groovy. be... groovy. Yeah. It's, <laughs> to go it's, back to it's, our it's 80s slang. Radical. Yes. And I think that, you know, there's a three-gun shooting episode where I compete against Kevin Rose. There's a... Uh, God, there's so many episodes that there, there's kind of something for everybody. And I think that if if I have enough fans who come back to me and say oh my God, like I want another 10 episodes or I want another six episodes. I would do things slightly different, uh, differently. So, uh, but I'd be happy to do more video. Sure. And, uh, if I did it again, I would definitely not have as crazy a schedule as I had. We did, I think 13 shows in 16 weeks or something suicidal like that. That is kind of like was, way too. Yeah, it was insane. That's insanity. Com complete insanity. And the, uh, I would make the shows 60 minutes probably instead of, 21 22 minutes yeah it seems like you just get you get that little tease but it's not like a fun can't wait to see the next one it's kind of like that's it after well, a while i'll put it this way it's very i'm sure you've heard the quote and it's attributed to a lot of different people but you know sorry for the length of my letter but i didn't have time to write a short yes, one yes yes it is really hard to take five or six days of footage and chop it down to 21 minutes yeah. i mean it's an incredible act of wizardry for some of these editors who they got the editors that does zero point zero fantastic to cut this stuff together from the selects. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. So it's the biggest challenge for me was, and for everybody involved was how do we make a show that is smart? That is not dumbed down. That mm -hmm. is not just pure sensationalism right. that gives people stuff they can use. That's a really tall order for 22 minutes. Speaking of sensationalism, did anything go horribly wrong during any of the filming? Cause I'm imagining <laughs> you and Kevin Rose shooting things and let's like, and that's how Kevin, why Kevin has nine toes, <laughs> you know, or something so like fortunately that. We had, we had a lot of safety uh, on board for the shooting episode. I did, Three gun shooting is like doing speed golf or real real life halo with different guns. So you have stages that are like the holes on a golf course and you have to run through them swapping between guns shooting different targets. That's cool. It's cool. It's yeah. super rad. So of all of the 
of uh, most of the skills I would be up to doing more of, but that one in particular was very, very addictive. And I did run the first part of one course forgetting to put in my earplugs and oh, no. very quickly realized, Oh wait, I can't hear anything anymore. <laughs> I should hit pause wow. and go back to the beginning. The, the most traumatic, there were two episodes that really inflicted a lot of bodily trauma and psychological trauma. The first was the parkour episode. Uh, I tore three out of four of the muscles in both of my quadriceps. And keep in mind, that sounds all, extremely painful. Extremely painful. Uh, developed a, acute subpatellar tendonitis. So my knees were swollen to the size of like grapefruit. So I had to buy medical grade compression pants. And, and grapefruit do, is the only fruit that is used for swell. No one's like <laughs> it's swollen to the size of like papaya. An <laughs> yeah, papaya. Man, this is, it was like a durian. My elbows <laughs> swollen like a durian. What? Yeah. That'd, be, that'd be a very hipster thing to yeah, say. Just right? so you could open the door to explaining yeah. what it is. It's like a dragon fruit on my arm. <laughs> well, okay, so you had to buy medical grade compression pants. That sounds attractive. Yeah, and then I had to do PT once or twice a day with all the icing and electrostim and ultrasound and uh, oh, the, and all of that. Uh, DMSO, which is a cream that is a right. solvent, but the uh, jujitsu episode was also yeah. very intense. So I went to New York City and trained with an amazing group of guys at uh, Marcelo Garcia Jiu-Jitsu. So Marcelo Garcia, if you could combine Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Mike Tyson, Wayne Gretzky into one person for jujitsu, Marcelo Garcia is that guy. He's wow. so much better than everybody else that there's there's really no dispute about him being the best and. So you go to his gym and I train with his guys. And of course, a person like that attracts just beasts and yeah, people sure. who really want to compete at the highest level right. uh, on the planet. And uh, I was actually trained jointly by a handful of different people, uh, including Marcelo and then a gent named Josh Waitskin, who's a very good friend of mine. I know of that name. Who wrote The Art of Learning, but he was the inspiration for the, uh, the movie and the book Searching for Bobby Fischer. And so he, what we did in this episode, I'm so proud of this episode, and it's really fun to watch. We have a lot also of... Also on iTunes, right? Also on iTunes, and we have a lot of extended footage. So the jujitsu episode, what Josh did is he said, all right, I'm going to give you a tutorial on some of the core principles that I think are most important for chess, and we're going to apply that to human chess, which is jujitsu. And so we have this playoff between jujitsu, basically cross-training with jujitsu and chess, Oh, wow. To get to the sort of final challenge. There's a lot of choking and me getting choked involved in this episode, but I also, on the first day, I don't know why my luck is such that, like, on the first day when they wanted to try to establish my, like, baseline, oh, no. <laughs> like, where are you? Boom. I get kind of tossed in the, this big dude's shoulder goes right into my floating rib. Ah, yeah. And so I'm pretty sure I either tore the connective tissue or broke that floating rib on the first day. And then the technique we were focused on, something called the guillotine, which, which, uh, Marcel is very famous for. It's, right. a, it's a method of choking. Legs wrapped around you. Yeah. Squeezing he, that he same place. From, he can do it from any possible position, but it's, it's basically popping your head off, uh, and choking you unconscious. And we were focusing on that technique as sort of the central compass for everything else. So if you got very good at the guillotine, or the guillotine, that would incorporate all of the principles, like the high level concepts that you would need to know in jiu-jitsu. It's a really fun idea that can be applied to a lot of different things, right? If you get really good at, say, the kettlebell swing, as something completely different. If you get really good at the two-handed kettlebell swing, which people ask me if you could only do one exercise for the rest of your life, or if I could only do one exercise and I'm on the road a lot, what would it be? Two-handed kettlebell swing. Carry this huge-ass kettlebell around with you wherever you travel. Or, here's a trick, though. You can, uh, you can get a dry bag used for kayaking, 
which is intended to keep water out of the bag. Ah, and keep water in it. And you keep water in it. And then oh, you could do nice. Turkish get-ups and swings and all that stuff. But the uh, if you learn all of the principles involved with a proper two-handed kettlebell swing, it transfers to a thousand other activities. You learn about proper biomechanics. And so we used the guillotine in this in a very similar way. But yeah, I, I think I broke my my floating rib on the right side in the first day and then had four more days of getting my ass right, kicked. Right, just like them squeezing on it as hard as you can. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, the, 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 the great part was that whenever I snapped someone's head down to try to throw in a guillotine, their their skull would go right into my floating yeah, like, rib. Just push that rib in a little tighter and he'll really feel it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. In terms of uh, what other pain, the parkour... I tore my forearm horribly, as well as my infraspinatus, which is a rotator cuff muscle. And then the very next episode was drumming. <laughs> <laughs> like, I need to do this with my feet. Yeah, yeah. Can I do <laughs> this with my feet? Yeah. What if we just do double bass the whole time? Oh, wow. How did you select the teachers? Like, how did you pick Marcelo? I mean, you just looked him up, and everyone was like, that's the guy. If you had to pick the guy, that's the guy. There's a component of that, but then there's also the question of... Uh, I have a very particular process that I use for teaching, for selecting teachers. For instance, if you had to find a swimming coach, let's just say this was at the height of Phelps mania, right? And people would say, oh my God, he's by far the best swimmer who's ever walked the planet. Right, yeah. And uh, he should be the coach. But not always are the best performers the best teachers. Yes. Number one. I was going to ask you about that. Number yeah. two, when you look at the world's best performers, at the very, very highest level, most of them are mutants, right? So using the swimming example, and this is speaking of someone who didn't learn to swim until I was like 31, 32. Okay. It's pretty fucking embarrassing. Part that, of my F-bombs. That's, that's awkward. Yeah, especially if you grew up on Long Island, which partially explains the F-bombs. Then, um, <laughs> then uh, if you look at, say, high school swimming, really high-level high school swimming, you see a, a variety of body types. Mm-hmm. Then you get to, say, college, but then you go to Division One. Okay, they start looking very similar. They right. kind of look like bats, and yeah, uh, they I, start I getting a little taller. And then you get to Olympic level. Mm-hmm. They all look the same. They have very similar biomechanics and uh, proportions. And you can't mimic, if you're just a normal average Joe like, uh, like me, you can't mimic, say, the flexibility of uh, Phelps' ankles or the weird, right. like, completely mutant, physical attributes that he has. So you have to separate attributes from skills. And so my question is almost always, uh, can I find someone who's gone from zero to expert in six months? That's the person I want to study, especially if they have attributes that run counter to most of the world's top performers. For instance, like in ultra endurance, I want to find someone who's technically really interesting and then who has a repertoire I might be able to replicate, I'll ask experts and you can find like, if you, if you just Google, well, this is uh, if if you were to do swimming, right, you could search silver medalist in swimming and search cities around you and you'll, mm-hmm. you'll, pr- you'll eventually find someone. Sure. You can probably get on Skype with that person for like a hundred bucks an hour. Yeah. Especially cause he probably works at like the copy shop down the street. Right. Half of these guys I mean, are poten- like not doing anything. Potentially. Right. Yeah. And that was that, such a dick comment, but, but, <laughs> but you could yeah, ask that person, sure. uh, you know, who are the, who are the most controversial teachers in swimming? Who are the people who are really good at this? Who shouldn't be right. And it turns out and say ultra endurance. I did this for four hour body and for four hour chef. Talked to Scott Jurek, who's a seven time, I think he's seven time at that, at, at that point, Western States, 100, it's a hundred mile race. He won it seven times in a row and he's vegan. Insane. That's like, that right. makes like very, no sense. Very right? hard to believe. Sure. Now, from a dietary standpoint, I wanted to study him. From a training standpoint, though, he's perfectly built for ultra endurance. He's built like a spider. So I wanted to ask him, 
who's good at this, who shouldn't be. And he's like, oh, well, there's this like 240 pound guy who's super jacked, who's basically joints shouldn't be able to withstand an ultra endurance race, but he's done these repeatedly and he's done very, very well. Okay. Yeah. I want to study that guy. So the reason that you want to learn from somebody who's picked something up in six to eight months or whatever is because that's to judge whether you're going to be able to possibly do the same thing. And the reason you look for the contrarian attributes physically is because you don't want the guy who just randomly was built for this activity, found out one day, ultra endurance, speaking of which, this guy was on TV on Stanley's Superhumans, which I'm sure you've seen. This guy was like drunk with his friends and he's like, I'm bored. And he ran 30 miles and yeah. he, that was like his first jog. Yeah. And it's right. like, okay, well, you don't count because you I think were probably born to Dean, run. Probably Dean Carnassus. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm trying to find people who are not relying on genetics. I want to find people who are relying on a better toolkit. Right. Uh, so for instance, for swimming, like if you look up Shinji Takeuchi, Japanese guy, at the time that I wrote The 4-Hour Chef, he had the second most viewed swimming video on YouTube but he learned to swim in his thirties and that's insane. Yeah. It, but his technique. So he basically hacked the system and he was able to go back to that sigmoid curve to like skip that whole flatline component and just boom, jump up to expert in, in a very short period of time. What was he doing before that? I got to wonder. I don't know. That's a good question. I have no idea. Cause it's different if it's like, yeah, I worked at Starbucks and I just went for a swim one day and I'm really good at swimming. And a guy who's like, yeah, I was an Olympic level track and field athlete and then was like, I'm going to switch into swimming. For sure. You have to look at the context, yeah. but you don't always have to choose one. So for instance, for you in Chinese, I would say you want to have someone, you want to have teachers who are from mainland China and from Taiwan yes. because they speak differently. Luckily, one lives in my house <laughs> and very, one is on Skype. Very helpful. Yeah. See, so and, uh, Similarly, for drumming, right, for the drumming episode, I had, I think, four days to go from zero to playing on the drums for Foreigner in a sold-out show nice. at the end of the week. And But I had two teachers. I had uh, Stuart Copeland, who's the founding drummer of The Police, who's just obviously a master, right. beyond, beyond, uh, considered one of the top ten drummers of all time. And then I also had, I think his name was Adam Timmerman, who was at the School of Rock. And so he could identify, in many ways much more with my level and he also had experience teaching so i had i had the inputs of both the jedi right and then the person who's made a career of teaching who's much more familiar he's seen how my movie plays out right? the tim ferris learning drums movie right he's seen it a hundred times because he's had a hundred other people sure who started right where i started it's funny and i'm glad you bring up this point because a lot of times people will say well you had this guy on and he was talking about this subject but you know that like the guy who's the man with this is this other guy and i'm and i'm like yeah i actually didn't have him on on purpose i knew about him and they're like you're crazy you're crazy but when i did the pre-interview I talked to the guy who, who was on the show and he was great at articulating everything that ever, you know, if you want to start this, you want to start lucid dreaming, you want to do this, this is how you do it. And then the other guy was like, man, you just get into the flow and you're just in the zone. And I'm like, that's not helpful right. for the guy who doesn't know what you're even talking about. Yeah, we need, right. we need specifics. Right. And the other piece of it is if you're trying to find the, the number one guy, whoever is purportedly the hot commodity at the time, there's an availability issue and there's an accessibility issue and you sometimes run into attitude problems on top of that. So it's going to be hard for you to get a hold of them and you may not get what you want because they will feel in some respects rightly that they're trying to strike while the iron is hot. They don't have a lot of time. 
so they won't elaborate and go into the details to the extent that you would like. What do you mean? They're trying to strike while the iron is hot. Well, what I mean by that is if, if you're the, the hottest movie star, okay, like if you're, uh, what's his name, Taylor Lautner, the guy who was the werewolf in... Right, yeah, Team Jacob. Yeah, who, yeah. Well, he, he, who was like the hottest thing in Hollywood for a period of time. Right. If I want him to give me acting lessons, it's not going to happen because he's trying to capitalize on a period in which he is hot. Oh, right. He doesn't have time for you. He's trying to That's get right. to That's the brass right. ring. And so right now, if I tried to approach whoever the A-lister is for acting lessons or, or just advice on acting, probably not going to happen. Right. Taylor's more available now. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Thing because those tides shift very quickly. So from a strictly pragmatic time efficiency standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to go for the, the silver medalist or the bronze medalist or, or far less than that, than a, the, as opposed to trying to chase down whoever happens to be does that the, mean the, you're the golden gonna, child. Does that mean you're going to be in the next Twilight movie? Is that what that <laughs> means? Is that a foreshadowing? I actually wanted very specific instructions on how to become a werewolf. Yes. Um, one of my favorite books when I was a kid, I still have it actually. I, I've had it since I was uh, eight or nine years old. It's called a Lycanthropy Reader. It's a collection of stories about werewolves in Western culture. Lycanthropy is a werewolf culture word? Lycanthropy is being a werewolf. Ah. It's a, it's, a, came, it's a condition. Right. It's a condition. <laughs> oh, I see. That's like the scientific it's name the, for... It, that's right. It's in, it's in the uh, physician's like, uh, desk reference. Lycanthropes <laughs> are uh, reading it regularly. Got it. So are you doing experiments now? Are you moving towards something else that you can talk about? Yeah, yeah, I am. Well, I, for those people who do not have a visual, which most of you do not, I have a, a big container. I have a gallon of distilled water in yeah. front of me. It I looks see. a little yellow from it this angle. It looks a little yellow. It's mixed, <laughs> so. mixed with, uh, with horse urine. Uh, which I find to be uh, performance answer. No, it's actually, you can order it's, that it's, through our Amazon affiliate <laughs> link for horse urine, <laughs> powdered coyote urine yeah. that you can mix in <laughs> for travel packets. It has a bit of lemon juice, unsweetened lemon juice okay. in here as well. I am doing a fast, so I've been experimenting with fasting and tracking all sorts of things, partially to just reboot my immune system right now. So I'm I'm on my towards the the end of the second day of the fast, and I'm going to go into a third. Yeah. I've already kicked over, and this is very, very fast, so I have some tricks for doing this, but I've already kicked over into ketosis, so my body's already using fat and not exclusively glucose. How do you know that? You okay. be on a strip? I, no, no, I'm glad you asked, because I have only recently found a great tool for it. I uh, used to use keto sticks, where, right. you, where you, you pee, urinate on a stick. Yeah, you urinate on a stick, or better yet, just for accuracy purposes, you, you dip it in <laughs> like physical. Your, you don't want to be on the stick and then it bounces you don't want somewhere to piss on your wall. <laughs> right. Uh, or actually that's a good point. Or no, just to get a reliable result from the strip. Oh, that you want to dip it. You want right. to dip it into your <laughs> urine in a cup or something like that for 15 seconds and then yeah. take it out. But the, the keto sticks are very imprecise and they, they expire very easily. Some of them are off. The reagents are off. Uh, there is a device from Abbott labs called the precision extra X T R A. This is a, a glucometer, and I actually have it in my bag because I'm testing myself every three hours or so. It not only measures your glucose, but you can put another different strip in, and it measures your ketones. It's great. It oh, tells, interesting. It tells you your millimolar ketone levels. Who, who needs that who isn't you? Like, is there a person that's like, they made that for them? They're made for diabetics. Okay, that yep, makes it yep, way so more sense. It's designed for diabetics who want to track dangerous levels of either glucose, high or low, or dangerous levels of ketones on the high side because they can experience something called ketoacidosis, which is not the same physiologically as nutritional ketosis, which is what I am headed towards. So okay. by tonight, I should be around two millimolars. And I mean, I've had nothing to eat for 
uh, probably you know, 40 or 50 hours now. How are you feeling? Well, yesterday I felt like shit because my body was clamoring for glucose, yeah. but I didn't have any. Uh, now that I'm kicking over, I feel amazing. I feel great. And by tomorrow, my mental acuity will be two to five X what it is right now. We should have had you come over tomorrow. <laughs> you want to come back? <laughs> I'll be on fire, but I'm feeling, okay. I'm, I'm feeling great. Once I get above, say, 1.3 millimolars, uh, I, I feel very, very good. Now, how does this apply to anyone? Well, it, it applies to people who want to follow, say, the Atkins diet. Right. Or who want to go paleo and then try fasting. It's really fascinating because the blood tells the story. You can't rely on urine exclusively. Sure. And I really think that everyone should obviously speak to your doctor. I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on the internet. But right. I feel like everyone should, with some type of supervision, experience ketosis because it can alleviate when you remove carbohydrates, particularly starches and so on, all sorts of autoimmune issues. And uh, so I had Lyme disease last year, still recovering from that. I did a lot of antibiotics. And for the first time in my life, after a very long duration of antibiotic use, I had these weird skin disorders that people usually associate oh. with a chronic condition, like eczema, psoriasis. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell is this? Sure. I've never had anything like this. And I st so I started playing with a few things, including there's a, there's a probiotic called L-Plantarum that, uh, that I ended up getting on Amazon. I took it for two days and all the skin disorders decreased by like 75%. Now, do you know why this is? Because it sounds like, okay, you take antibiotics, it kills off the good and the bad stuff. And that's then right. you're feeding the bad stuff that's left over with the blood sugar that you've got from carbohydrates. And so it just starts to go rampant in your system. I, I mean, think, is that how it works? Well, I think there are a lot of variables after, say, Lyme disease uh, or during with antibiotic use. But the gut flora, we're about, I want to say, people say we're 10% human, 90% bacteria. Not entirely accurate. I had some... Uh, I've, I've spoken with a bunch of biologists about this, and uh, we're, we're about, I want to say, 40 or 50% human. The rest is bacteria. And when you completely carpet bomb your intestinal tract, you're basically killing your second brain and compromising your immune system. Uh, so a lot of people do not realize that neurotransmitters handicap severely if you deplete your gut in that way. Mm -hmm. So there are many people who suffer from, say, depression, and I think they just need to be more proactive, or they should before taking tons of medication. Again, talk to your doctor. Yeah. But at least supplement that with repopulating their gut by huh. consuming not just probiotics. This is another mistake people make. Not just probiotics and swallowing all this stuff that you can get at Whole Foods, but taking prebiotics. With probiotics, you're basically consuming bacteria. You're right. swallowing bacteria sure. in the hopes that it seeds in your gut. The problem with that is if you don't have the right, say, pH balance and, and environment in your gut, it that just will just dies, pass yeah. right through you. Sure. And uh, so you can take things like different types of fiber. Uh, for instance, you could take inulin, which tastes pretty good. It's kind of sweet. Uh, I-N-U-L-I-N. Uh, you can get that anywhere, you know, on well, Amazon. So yeah, exactly. Like inulin and baobab root, oddly enough, uh, which is has very insanely high nutritional content as well, and ORAC kind of free radical scavenging capabilities. You take that stuff first. You take these prebiotics. It creates the environment that helps you then absorb and work with the probiotics. So I did a, a ton of that stuff. And there's been a lot of research and some very interesting research that's come out recently. And if you search sort of a three days fast immune system, a bunch of it will pop up. But uh, my immune system has and autoimmune response has just been on the fritz since I had Lyme disease and right. did this long sure. track of uh, antibiotics. And I've experimented now with fasting quite a few times. 
and it just seems to reset your system. And that stuff just seems to go away for at least a period of time. How long are you going to be without food then? This time around, I'm not going to go too crazy. The last time I did it was seven days without It's a long time. Without anything other than distilled water. Uh, which was a long time. That was with, with that was at a clinic with medical supervision. Ah. This time around, obviously, I'm not at a clinic. I'm yeah. doing it on my own, and uh, fortunately, I have access to good doctors, which I, I encourage people to try to figure out. But uh, I'm only going to do three days, maybe four. I was expecting ketosis to take a lot longer, but I've been experimenting with a bunch of stuff, yeah. and I'm like, whoa, wait a second. So this isn't like fat burning stuff that you're trying to do. Uh, you're trying I to could reset this. It's not for fat loss, but I could lose a ton of fat. You don't weigh close yeah. to a ton. No, I'm not. I'm not a ton. I'm very dense. Right. Like mercury. Uh, but the, <laughs> if I were to go into ketosis and maintain it all of next week, even if I ate food, so if I just ate, say, you know, meat and eggs and water and iced tea and blah, 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 it's pretty right. mushy. You don't get much crispy good stuff, maybe uh, pork rinds oh, uh, in ketosis, then I would expect if I'm currently around uh, 12 to 14% body fat, I could probably lose five pounds of fat next week. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot. When I fasted for seven days, I lost 11 pounds total, but I would say seven to eight pounds of that was probably muscle. So you have yeah, to be I ready to lose. I don't recommend that without medical supervision. That sounds like a terrible idea, especially if you've got to like drive to work and stuff oh, like that. Oh, you should absolutely not do that. Yeah, yeah you just, it would be extremely dangerous. You shouldn't do it. Yeah, I want to just I wanted to throw that in there because I think people are like, "Cool, I'll just starve myself and drink water." And it's like, "No, man, if if you've got to be sharp enough to take I-75 to and from your office or what 280 oh, or whatever, sure. you you can't be No, no, if you're going to fast, you should do it with medical supervision. It's not that hard to set up. And I would say furthermore, for fat loss cuz people get so irrational around fat loss and they're like wait 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 you're telling me if i chop off my arm i can lose five pounds like yeah you, you can you yeah, can lose more than five yeah, pounds you don't you, chop off a leg. You, you don't want you do not need to fast or go into ketosis to lose a lot of fat i mean there are people who followed the slow carb diet which i described and introduced in the four hour body there are people who've lost 200 pounds on that and it's That's very insane. it's routine that if a guy yeah just to use one example it's very effective for women there are women many women who've lost more than 100 pounds if you're a male of, say, more than 200 pounds and you have higher than 15% body fat, it's very common for people to lose 10 to 20 pounds in the first month. That is nuts. It's super common. It's not uncommon at all. All right. Now, people are going to yell at me if I don't ask you about something that people can apply right out of the box. We did the language stuff and people are going to go, wah, I don't learn languages. I want something else. You have something called fear setting, which is opposed to... Is it different than goal setting? Is it just, a, or is this like the Tim Ferriss branded version of goal setting? I uh, no, it's it's a process that I routinely do, and I probably do this every four to eight weeks. So whenever I feel overwhelmed or anxious, in general, or about a specific decision, say quitting a job, starting a company, hiring somebody, firing somebody, putting something out there, joining a public speaking group, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. If I feel anxiety and overwhelm, and this is, seems hardwired into the males in my family, <laughs> yeah. then I will sit down and do what I call fear setting. And just as context, I think that people are probably familiar with the idea of goal setting and how you want to make it you know, smart, measurable, achievable, blah, blah, blah. And if it's not crystal clear, you're going to miss it, right? Like, so if you don't have a goal, you're not going to yeah. hit it clearly. You have to define these things. And fear is related, but slightly different. If you want to overcome fear, you have to define it very, very clearly. And so what I will do, for instance, is whether it's negotiating for this TV deal, perfect example, or 
doing a week with people Laird Hamilton trying to learn to surf. And he's the undisputed king of big wave surfing. Uh, is to sit down and be like, all right, what am I afraid of? Because I'm feeling paralyzed or I'm Sharks. putting things off. Sharks, among other things. There was a, just as a side note, there was a woman I saw in Hawaii, had her arm bitten off by a tiger shark, and she was getting taken out to surf the same break on a jet ski. That's baller. That's really wow intense. She's, she has much bigger balls than I do. She got it bitten off a long time ago, I assume. It was a I few assume. years ago. No, no, no. And she's like, immediately wanted to go right back out because wow. they're playing in the shark's backyard, not the other way around. Right. But uh, I digress. So Talk yes, about fear setting. So yes, that would be one fear. But let's just take a more kind of mundane example where it's like you want to ask for a raise or something like that. You can sit down and basically take a piece of paper. I do this. I always do this by hand. And take a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11, and I'll turn it kind of landscape view, right? I'll draw two lines that separate the page into thirds. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll write down on the furthermost left-hand side all the worst things that could happen. So what are, like, if I ask for a raise, if I quit my job, if I fill in the blank, if I decide to take a two-month trip around the world, and I've never traveled outside the U.S., what are all the worst things that could happen? And, and they can't be vague. They have to be super, super specific. And you write down all those things in the left-hand column. Then in the middle column, you write down... Uh, or you answer the question, what are the things I could do to mitigate the likelihood of these things happening? Right. So what are the steps I could take to mitigate these things right, sure. to prevent them from happening or make the, the likelihood less? And then the last column is what could I do to get back to where I am now if these things happen? Oh, that's see, that's the missing piece right there, I think. Yeah, it's a huge piece. Because people try to go, see, these fears aren't so bad, but they don't think like, some because the problem is sometimes you go, damn that that sounds awful. I didn't even think of that until I started brainstorming. I'm never yeah. leaving the country. Uh, so you have the here are my fears. Put down the ridiculous stuff, like really whatever comes to mind. Then there's the how do I reduce the likelihood of these things happening, and then how do I get right back to where I am if these things fail? And this is or if these things happen, and this is very common. People are like, well, if I start my company. Blah, blah, blah. What if, what if, what if, what if? And I'm like, well, look, you're, you're doing really well at Goldman Sachs or wherever. Finance isn't going away. Like, if you try this thing in three years, do you have a durable skill set or a track record that would allow you to get a similar job at who the hell, JP Morgan or whatever? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, so what's the problem? Yeah, and they're like, the oh, I never thought about it that way. Really interesting. It's a reversible problem. And, and I think that, yeah, I'm a real stickler for language and a big surprise, but people talk about risk. This is really risky. Oh, that's not risky. This is super high risk. Oh my God, you're a risk taker. What is risk? Let's talk. Like, we need to define that term first. Yeah, and the sure. way I think about risk is very specifically, and that is the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome. And the irreversible That's is the, the key. key piece. People usually don't sit down to ponder and right. analyze. Uh, so the fear setting I do very regularly. I'm kind of prone to anxiety, have always been that way. Everyone listening to the show is like, I'm so glad that you said that, because I think there's a lot of people, myself included, who thought... I'm worried about everything. I'm weird. Oh, yeah. No, it's not weird. It's, it's the default. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that there's a great book. This might not seem relevant to people, but I highly recommend everybody read it called Bird by Bird, which is uh, <laughs> about writing. Okay. And uh, the, it's by a woman named Anne Lamott. And I've given this book to probably a half a dozen friends who were so stressed out about their first books that they were going to cancel the book contract and return the advances oh, and throw in the towel. And at least two of these people I know of offhand, I'm not going to mention them by name, I sent this book to them bird by bird. They finished their books 
and they went on to become New York Times bestsellers. That's so, awesome. So talk about a fork in the path. That was a seminal moment for these people. And this book, so Bird by Bird, the story is, and Anne Lamott's a very, very funny writer. It's, it's a book about writing, fiction writing, but it's really a book about life. And the Bird by Bird title comes from the fact that she recalls a memory when she came home from school and a few hours later, she saw her, I think it was her older brother, sitting at the kitchen table with his, with his head in his hands with like a hundred different books about birds on the table. Not a hundred, obviously, but like just piles and piles of books about birds. And he, and he had to finish basically a school project that he'd had months to do. Oh, no. He hadn't touched it and he had to finish it for the next day. And he was just paralyzed, holding his head in his hands. I'm like, getting anxious yeah, hearing yeah. about this because yeah, yeah. we've all been there. We've all been there. Yeah. And uh, her dad came over and sat down with her brother at the table. And he said, just take it bird by bird, buddy. Bird by bird. <laughs> and so that's the name of the book. But it's a fantastic adjunct to this regular fear setting. And he failed biology and became a writer. Got it. Yeah, yeah. you got it. <laughs> out of all these skills that you've learned, out of all of these different massive undertakings and projects and things like that, what, do you have a favorite couple of skills? Or, or Definitely. Yeah, there, there are a few that jump to mind that translate to so many different areas of life and just kind of transcend the single skill. The first would be swimming. So I, as I mentioned earlier, did not learn to swim until my early 30s, which is hugely embarrassing because I was uh, raised on Long Island. I, it was one of my largest embarrassments and humiliations. So to overcome that using a method called total immersion was a total game changer of me. And once, once you conquer one of the impossibles for you, whether that's being flexible or doing something ultra endurance related, finishing a marathon, starting your own company. Once you tackle and conquer one of those impossibles, you start to ask yourself, what else have I assumed is impossible? So the, uh, the total immersion works by questioning all of the basic biomechanics of swimming. And you think you have to swim on top of the water. You think you have to grab the water and pull. You think you have to kick a lot and do kickboard exercises. And almost none of that is true. So the, the swimming was a real game changer for me. Uh, also, Speed reading, learning how to speed read. Do you do that with everything you read now? Pretty I much. Don't, I don't do that with everything I re uh, everything I read because it's very it's very high labor. It requires a level of attention that I don't necessarily want to apply to all reading. And there are things that you want to savor. I mean, it's like food. There's food that you consume for fuel, and there's food that you want to savor. Right? You don't want to go out to you know, Saison here in SF, which is like three Michelin star restaurant, and just right. wolf down your food like it's jack-in-the-box and run out the door. You want to savor it. Uh, reading is very much the same. I'll, I'll give people a couple of tips right now, and this is with no video, where they can probably double their reading speed in about 10 minutes. So this this is, uh, let's see if I can do this. So imagine you're looking at a page of text. Looking at a page of text, and you're staring at the first word in the line. You're wasting all of your peripheral vision of your left eye. So if, if you kind of hold a finger in front of your face with your arm extended, and you stare at that finger, you can take in a lot through your peripheral vision. Similarly, there's no reason to start with the first word in the sentence if you can very easily see it in your, perfer in your peripheral vision. So you can take a what they would call a pacer, it could be a pencil, it could be your finger, and you're going to underline each line as you read it, but you're going to start one word in from either side. Huh, okay. All right, so when you kind of hit the return and go to the next line, you're going to go to the second word, and then you're going to end on the second to last word, and then go to the next line. And by doing that, by using the pacer and by indenting on either side that way visually, you'll probably double your word per minute reading rate. Just wow. that, just right there. And yeah. and as you train, you can get to the point where you're you're indenting two or three words, and you can go from reading say 300 words per minute. Let's just 
tack that at one page per minute. Most people have 150 to 200 words per minute. You could go from 150 to 200 words per minute to a thousand words per minute. Is it just because of eye movements? Well, there are, there's a lot of witchcraft and voodoo associated with accelerated learning. Sure. Yeah. And try to discard all of any, if it's gray zone, I try to discard it. If it doesn't have any evidence, empirical or, or otherwise, I really try to focus on like the mechanical stuff. So it's like, all right, look, let's focus on things that are not controversial. Sure. We know a lot about how people read and how the eyes move and how the optic system works. So let's just optimize it like a mechanic working on a car. And uh, what I just mentioned is doing exactly that. Wow. Interesting. So, so the answer is we're not really sure, but this works. So don't worry about it. Well, that, that is a, no, the, the, the advice that I just gave with the pacer and the indentation, yeah, yeah. it's minimizing two things that are very well understood. Okay. So it's minimizing the number of fixation points per line. I get that. And what people can do, if you, if, if you think you read lines of text in a straight line, you can try this. You can, you can close one eye and look at a wall and then look across the wall like you're reading a line of text and you'll feel your eye, the closed eye, the closed eye that you have a finger on jumping. It's moving around. Yeah, yeah. It jumps yeah. in these very herky jerky movements. Yeah. And those are called cicadic movements. So you're minimizing the number of fixation points. And by using the pacer, you're minimizing two things back skipping, which is your eye just bouncing around the page. You're minimizing the duration of those fixation points. So this is very kind of plain vanilla, but most people who want to teach speed reading want to sell you a 200 page book. Yeah. So they have to make it really complicated. Yeah. And, and uh, that's an example of complicating to profit, which I am an enemy of. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, boom, right there. What the advice I just gave you is enough for most people to double their reading speed with not less comprehension, but better comprehension. Perfect. Yeah. Cause I think that's what people would write in, right? Well, I, I would speed read, but I like to understand what I'm reading. Oh yeah. You can completely demolish other people in retention using this technique. And partially, if it's something you really need to remember, if you triple your reading speed, you can read it twice in the same period of time that someone else would take to read it once, and you'll have more factual That's recall. a really good point, right? If you're reading twice as fast, and you're retaining even, let's say, 60%, if you read it twice, at the, which is the same amount of time, now you're retaining an impossible 120%. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not how the math works. Again, I went to law school because you didn't need math. <laughs> so, but uh, the, all of these skills, I think the most, the most important thing to realize is what some people ask me like, well, don't you feel like you're missing out being a jack of all trades because you're getting kind of good at stuff and then you're jumping to the next. Right. Then you're getting kind of good at something else and you're jumping to the next. I think you should just stick with the samurai arrow archery thing. Right. The, if you ask the Japanese me. horseback archery. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the graduate school of Japanese uh, samurai arts wouldn't accept me, so I need to look at other options. Right. But, but the point that I try to bring up with folk is, look, number one, the, the 10,000 hour thing has been debunked quite a bit. And a side note, something's very interesting about those top performers from that particular study uh, if you look at some of the other patterns, they sleep more than the the people who don't perform as well, and they nap more than the people who don't perform as well. There are a lot of variables. Um, but wow. the, the point I was going to make is that what I'm trying to become the best at in the world is meta-learning. It's the, meta -learning. the skill of yeah. how to learn. So just like an artist could take crayons or charcoal or oil paints, if they have those fundamental techniques, I'm trying to master the fundamental techniques of learning. So that right. if I have to go from, as I did, trying to prepare for a live TV interview for six minutes in Tagalog, which is uh, Filipino, uh, with no background in like three or four days, which is really stressful. I don't, that sounds don't, terrible. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. I don't recommend that. But go, to go from that to say, 
a physical skill like like rally racing or or jujitsu, and then to poker, literally week after week after week after week, it's refining that toolkit, and uh, that's the toolkit that I hope people take from you know not only the books but certainly. If you want something that doesn't require reading 600 pages, then yeah, the, no the, the TV show was sort of on a meta level constructed so that each of these episodes would deliver one or two tools. Um, so if you, if you watch the whole season, you will come away with tools like the speed reading trick that I just described. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for this, man. I know we've taken a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. Is there anything that you want to bring across that, you've, that I haven't asked you that you want to get out? System. Ooh, that's a that's a good one. Because there's got to be like one thing that nobody ever asks you because it's not out there. I think that the question will be, what do you wish everyone would do at least once in their adult lives? I think that's a good question. Sure. Like, what what do you personally wish everyone else should do? All right. And uh, not to get on my high horse or be sanctimonious about it. I don't think I need to be. Yeah. But I would say if you are very, very busy in a job or as an entrepreneur, you should schedule a four to eight week minimum, four to eight week vacation where you have to go off the grid. Like no email, no. Because you no did email. that. I remember we were, you're like, yeah, we'll hang out. And then you were like, just kidding. I'm going to Malaysia for like a month. Oh, yeah, that's right. Like two I, months no, I, went to, I went to Indonesia and uh, I had no computer, no email, of course, uh, no phone access and no calendar for four weeks. And what that forced me to do, a part of the reason I did that was not to just disappear to Indonesia, right. although yeah. that was certainly part of it. It was because I knew if those were the rules of the game, and this is the benefit, I had to set up systems and I had to divest myself of activities and commitments and basically reboot my entire thinking around how my life should be orchestrated, what I should be a bottleneck for or not. And when you set those systems up to allow for, let's just say six months from now, uh, an eight week trip, yeah. when you set those systems up, those can last for years after you get back. It's like obligation bankruptcy. Yeah. Obligation bankruptcy and completely re-architecting how you think of accepting responsibilities, delegating responsibilities, and automating those things. First of all, I mean, eliminating as much as possible, then automating as much as possible so you're not involved, whether that's right. just like, how do you handle bills that come in when you're gone? Well, you're going to have to sort that out. Yeah. And there are a lot of ways to do it. How are you going to handle tax uh, like letters from the IRS that come in. Well, maybe you could do things such as enable your accountant to have manager access on your American Express account right? and so on and so forth. And you start identifying these weaknesses in your current flow. Then you take your vacation. You're like, oh my God, that's so great. Thank God that I am yeah. off the grid and your, your body and your mind can recuperate. Then you come back and you can hit the ground running where your job or your business within your job or your business, you were able to execute at like a 10x capacity, not improving 10%, but improving 10x. Right, because you're not coming back to, oh my God, I've got to do eight weeks worth of crap. You might have a little bit of a backlog and some stuff, but mostly the idea is to come back with all of those systems still in place. And now you're like, okay, now I can just focus on creating stuff. That's right. And the trip, scheduling the four to eight week trip is important because you need a forcing function that requires you to right. put those systems in place because there's oftentimes such a huge, we're too busy with being busy with whatever our to-do list happens to be. And there's a high, what we perceive as a very high 
switching cost, right? To what do you fix mean? the system. Well, oh yeah, like, I see. If you're yeah. if you're dodging bullets every day, right? To be like, oh, you know what? I need to take four on a four hour block of time to sit down and figure out how to organize my my paperwork flow so sure. that my accountant and my lawyer and everybody else get what they need, or my boss and my subordinates or whatever. You're just not going to do it. You're going to be too rewarded with this sort of dopamine or serotonin flush from responding to the top 10 emails in your inbox. Sure. You're yeah. never going to do the big picture stuff. Never going to eat the frog, right? Or whatever it's called. I'm not sure. I, I love eating frogs. like a Brian frogs. Tracy thing. Like oh. eat the, but, I, but I get it because anybody who runs a company can also attest to this. When's the last time you fired someone and then went, oh my God, I should have done that like two years ago. But you didn't want to because you knew you had to replace them, train that new play person. Right. What if they're not as good? You know, you got to negotiate with them. You got to find them in the first place. Like it's a huge mess that you're, and you go, I'll just deal with her bullshit for another day. Right. And then you, you yeah, dive exactly. back into your inbox. Yeah. And I mean, we're sitting here in Silicon Valley. I work with a lot of startups um, and I've been very fortunate to work with some really fast growing startups, you know, the Ubers and Evernotes and Twitters and so on of the world. And I would say that uh, an expression that applies here that has come up in conversation with some of the top performing CEOs I've met is they view their job as constantly firing themselves. So they start out as like the product guy. Right. They fire themselves as the product guy. They find a product person to replace them. Then they think their job is to do X and they fire themselves from doing X to right. do something higher level. And so just in the way that uh, you would never look back and say, fire someone and, and say, oh God, I wish I'd taken another year to do that. Right. You're always like, why didn't I do that two years ago? Mm -hmm. When you set up those systems and effectively fire yourself as a bottleneck, you come back and you just feel this tremendous burden of weight relieved. And it does apply to people with, with jobs. And I, we, we probably don't have time to get into it today, but there are scripts, for instance, in the back of the four hour work week, the expanded edition for negotiating remote work agreements. That's a perfect opportunity to do exactly this within the constraints of a full-time job. So that's, that's, I think, the bit that I would love for people to, to take back. And a great book to kick you in the ass to get you there is one called Vagabonding. Oh, Ralph Buss. Such a good book. I read that when I was like in high school. Yeah. I probably, yeah. it's funny, when you wrote about that, I was like, wow, you're the only other person I know who yeah. knew that book even existed. Yeah. Vagabonding by, by Rolf Potts was one of the two books that I took with me when I traveled around the world for a year and a half starting 2004. That was a major step for me. I mean, I, I at that point hadn't taken a day off in God knows how long, years. And I uh, took that and then uh, Walden by Henry David Thoreau, of course. Yeah, but uh, vagabonding, is a, vagabonding is a great one to kick you in the ass and get you guys uh, thinking about this as a, as, a, as a realistic option, not just a fantasy. Thanks so much, man. This has been awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Super interesting, a little bit longer than usual, but what do you expect? Language learning, Hacking Chinese, the new TV show, of course, in iTunes. We'll have that linked up in the show notes as well. Selecting a mentor, selecting a teacher, biohacking, the usual amazing stuff from Tim Ferriss. And of course, I want to see all of you guys fear setting. I know I'm going to be doing that. I do something similar, but I definitely see room for improvement in what I'm doing when it comes to that. And I love the idea of fear setting instead of goal setting. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. I rely on you to keep our finger here at AOC on the pauls of what's up on the internet and beyond. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Tim on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as all the other resources mentioned here on the show. Bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. 
Also on the website are bonus episodes that aren't released in the iTunes feed for those of you who just can't get enough AOC. And remember to subscribe in iTunes or check us out on our network, Podcast One. Alternately, we have our iPhone and Android apps available on the marketplace for that, Art of Charm slash iPhone and slash Android. Getting the app will get you around certain firewalls, like if you're trying to download from a work phone that blocks iTunes, you live in a certain country that blocks the Art of Charm because it downloads straight from our servers, and you can help us review us in iTunes. I'll love you forever. When you write a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast, and please tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 